Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband. Our daft of the day, Masachat Bavakama, daft Sadi Chet, page 98. Uh, it's a long daft, so we're going to try to tackle a bunch of things in brief. Um, from almost from the top of the daft, we first have the case going back to the mission that we discussed, where, you know, the different coins, how a coin can lose its value. One of the ways is a broken coin, another way is if the government changes the money, etc. So here we have Somebody throws another person's coin into the Yam Hagadol, the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean. Patur, that person is exempt from having to pay for it. That's a very strange thing. Like you, you've basically taken your friend's coin. You would think you have to replace it. My Tama, what's the rationale? Amar Hamanach Kamach Shakle Vahani Mile Bitslulin the Kachazile Aval Akurin de Lo Kachazile Lo. So the the person who threw the coin can say, your coin is resting. It's there in the sea. You can go take it if you want, right? Meaning the implication is that the the sea, that the coin is visible or that the water is such that it's visible that you could go find it if you can, I don't know, dive or whatever, maybe just go out into the water. It's not that deep. Um, you have to be able to say it, it has to be visible, right? If the water itself is not, if the, the term here is slulin, right, that it's clear. If it's not clear, then you can't, that doesn't apply. And he would have to, um, he would have to compensate. He, he's no longer exempt. So the statement also only applies, like, let's say he, he rolls the coin into the sea. He doesn't pick it up. He doesn't throw it. But if he took the coin in his hands and then he threw it into the sea, then in that process of picking it up, he's done a Kinyan Hagba. He's actually made, you know, an acquisition for himself in a way that is fundamentally theft. And then once he's done that, then he has to return it in the same way that anything would have to return the coin. Um, as a, So the end of this statement and the beginning of this statement, meaning Rab at the beginning and you know the Gemara at the end, um, contradict in terms of what does it mean? How does the, how does the coin get into the sea? Um, and Rava is gonna come and ask you questions on this whole scenario because of that breakdown that we talked about the other day about um, taking away the Kedusha of Master Shani from a coin, right? Because what happens, and I'm jumping a bit because, again, in the interest of time, we want to touch on a bunch of things, but the idea here is that if um, it says the, the example is specifically well, what would happen if his purse, right, or bag of money fell into the Great Sea, again, the Mediterranean, and Mechalalin. Then you can't redeem on top of them, meaning that the money is in the sea. You could maybe go find it, but it's considered lost for the purposes of, are you allowed to to desacralize, to, you know, to deal with Master Shani with these coins? The alternative, of course, would be to re to go get them out of the sea, and then you, they would no longer be in the sea, and you could manage. But once they're in the sea, you can't use them for any purpose in that way. So, the Gemara goes on to discuss this in, you know, greater detail. But I find this to be a really interesting discussion over, you know, the coin that is readily available if only you go seek it. But it's not so readily available. Maybe you've actually committed this theft in order to 
to get it into the seat to begin with, who would think of, you know, the case, like, this is case law about what happens if somebody throws the coins into the sea. I will note that if you throw your coins into the Dead Sea, that becomes a different halachic conundrum because the salt and all the minerals and everything really destroy the coins. So it's a different category, and people suggest doing that as one of the possibilities to do it with a Masashini coin, meaning when you have that coin that you've redeemed the holiness of your vegetables or whatever onto it, then your fruits, you know, both, then, then you want to make sure after a certain point, you want to make sure that that coin cannot be used for anything. So people say, put it on a railroad track. I don't know exactly where that's happening, but the Dead Sea is another way to destroy the coin past the point of usability, as opposed to if you put it into the Mediterranean, it could come back. It would take a lot longer for the salt of the Mediterranean to, to destroy it. I don't know. There's something kindergartenish about this, right? Like the idea of like, it's there. I didn't really destroy it. You know what I mean? I don't know. There's something, but I'll, I'll get to something similar here on the top. So then we have this statement with Rabba later on. But I'm a Rabba. Let somebody take uh, someone's loan document. Reuven takes Shimon's loan document and he burns it, right? He doesn't owe him. He doesn't have to pay. But in other words, there's now no uh shimo you know ruven can't collect on that loan because there's no evidence that that loan was there right so um so they want to ask matkifla rami barhama so rami barhama says hey khidami okay what is this actual case that rabba's talking about if there are witnesses who know what was in the document so they can write another document but if there are no witnesses, how do we know what was written in it? So let Rabba's ruling be where he believes him. So in other words, there still has to be a way to sort of like substantiate, right? We still have to substantiate in a way, uh, you know, that he could actually sort of get, uh, that he could actually get uh, this document back. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit from here. It goes on to trying to show maybe they could find what, you know, Rabba's idea here uh, that you're not high of if you burn, you know, somebody's star is really a machloka between Rabbi Shimon and uh, the rabbis. And I'm, so I'm going to skip down a little bit here to what uh, Amemar has to say. Amar Amemar. Amemar says, Manda din dina de garmi. Okay. That somebody who judges the laws of garmi, Magdi be de meshtara ma'alia. Right, he can like sort of uh, uh, he exacts for this burnt loan document the value of the exact of the of the actual loan document. Uman dina de garmi, but someone who does not judge the law of garmi, magbi ba'alma, he can only sort of get the value of the actual paper itself. So we need to think a little bit about this is a new category that we've heard, which is garmi. Okay. Um, and it comes from this idea of, of Garma Benazikin Pator, okay? There's a whole uh, question of sort of like, if you have causation, right, in, in damage, are you not actually Chayav? So Rabbi Mayer actually has this opinion of Garma Benazikin, that if you do have causation with damage, then you are actually Chayav. But the Gemara usually holds that you're not actually Chayav. 
So the point here is, is that we don't usually the the we, if we do use judge the laws of gar of of garmi, okay, then you would be chaya uh, for causative damage. So in other words, you would be chaya if you actually burn the 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 star because you cause that person damage by b- burning the star. But if we don't hold by that concept, then all you're really chaya for is just actually the paper itself. So just know about this concept. It, it's going to come up again. Uh, we might see it in, in Bubba Batra actually comes up a bit. Um, but this is the first time you see this concept. And then the Gemara tells a story sort of around this. Have moved up, right? There was a an incident, right, where a loan document was burned. The Kafye Rapram Rav Ashi. And Rapram, you know, sort of pressured Rav Ashi. The Agbe Bay and he sort of got out the amount of the loan document for what was written on it, right? Um, like a beam is used for images. So uh, what that's referring to is that if you want to, uh, if you want to carve something into a beam, you use a beam of like very good quality, right? Because it's going to be something that's decorative. So Rafram made Ravashi pay for this loan document that he had burned, right? Ravashi burned this document. He made him pay for it a full payment from his best properties. So what was his best properties was this beam that you would use for images. So the idea here is, is that it has to do with whether or not you sort of believe in Garmi, like whether or not you hold that there is a cause of damages by burning this loan document or there isn't. And so the Gemara is basically, but shares the story at the end that shows an actual case where Somebody did burn a loan document and Rapron basically came and said, you actually have to pay me my money of what I was actually owed in the loan document. But I think it's interesting to see. I think it's so obvious that, of course, you should have to pay it. But it's really entertained the idea that maybe this is not something that you have to pay. Uh, I just want to note that the whole topic of Grama B'Dizikin, right, this idea, this uh, causation within the laws of damages is such a big topic in halacha, it's got its own Wikipedia page, meaning this is not a small area for Dafyomi. You know, it's a kind of thing that people spend months on in, in studying Iyun. And, you know, when you delve into uh, the nooks and crannies of all the permutations of the halacha, and, you know, I think I think it's the Ramban who has a whole treatise on Dina, Dina de Garmi. Like, we, we cannot do this justice ever in a Dafyomi podcast. But y'all should know that, that this is there as a really deep and rich area of halakha. Um, I'm going to pick up at the, it's, it's in the middle. Ahmed Bet is really long. So it's in the middle of Ahmed Bet. And it goes back, and then we've got a citation going back to the Mishnah where it says, Chameitz Pesach, meaning somebody who stole, the example is somebody who stole um, bread, right? Meaning actual leavened bread. And Pesach, happens over the time that the bread is in the possession of the robber. And that means that it's no longer, it no longer has any value because any leavening that was owned by a Jew over the time of Pesach is considered, you know, it's a prohibited for getting any benefit from it. So the citation for the mission is, then the robber can come and say to the original owner, here, you know, take it back. Like, this thing is just as it was when I took it from you. Why it didn't get moldy is a good question, but that's not the point, right? The, the issue is that this same bread has no value. 
at this time, and he doesn't seem to have to pay the original value. Is the so the Gemara asks, like, are we going to always derive this rule that anything that has a prohibition for benefit gives the robber the right to say, you know, this is what you this is what you originally had, even though it's no longer valuable. It's Rabyakov who says this. Now, this is, I think, the second time that we see Rabyakov in this area of Halakha. He's not a name that we know as a prominent figure otherwise. The example that is brought is an ox that killed a person. If an, uh, until that ox gets the death sentence from the court, that it has to be stoned, which is the halacha for such an ox, but there's a legal proceedings that have to take place, right? So in the interim, the somebody could sell the ox. The sale counts as a valid sale. If he dedicated the ox, if he consecrated it, it's considered a consecration. If he slaughtered the ox, then they're allowed to eat it. And likewise, if somebody, if, if it was all under the auspices of a shomer, of a guardian, and the guardian gave it back to the original owner, even though it's about to be um, that which is not allowed benefit from, that which is prohibited for benefit, it is still considered that it was returned to the original owner. The Gemara continues, it's here quoting a Breitza, right? But from the time that the, the judgment comes from the court, a sale is not considered a sale. Consecration doesn't count. If you shechted, if you slaughtered it, the meat is prohibited from eating. And if a guardian returned it to the original owners, it's not considered returned. He would still be on the hook for paying the value of it. Rabbi Yaakov Omer, and this is where Rabbi Yaakov's position comes in, Rabbi Yaakov is the one who said that even after the time of sentencing, when the Shomer, when the guardian returns it to the original owner, it's considered returned. My love, So Rabbi Chista complete, like, is going to figure out what's really going on here. Why aren't they disagreeing about this? Meaning, we want to see a disagreement between Rabbi Yaakov, um, let me say this carefully. Ah, I'm going to continue, and we'll, it will become clear. Rabbi Yaakov Savar, Omrin B'Yisrei Hana'ah HaReishel Chalafanecha, Rabbanan Savar, Ain Omrin B'Yisrei Hana'ah HaReishel Chalafanecha, meaning that's the dispute. Rabbi Yaakov says that when you have something that is prohibited for benefit, you, you are entitled to say, here, you know, take it, even though it's valueless. But Rabbanan, the, the majority view, says, no, you can't, meaning it has no value. It's, it's prohibited for benefit. You cannot return it as if you're actually doing an act of return. Um, and then Rabbi comes back and says, no, everybody agrees that something that is a surba is something you could say, that the rabbis also agree with that. So maybe they're really only disagreeing about the very specific case of chametz on Pesach, so the, and then Rabbi says, well, in that break, they're talking about a different issue about the ox that it gets a sentence. In, it's not even there. You can't say, here's your ox before you because the ox isn't present at that time. And so that's the dispute, according to Rabbi, right? That the rabbis say that the ox cannot get that sentencing when it's absent. And 
Rabbi Yaakov says it could be sentenced even in its absence, and then that would render it forbidden. And also, you say Harishal Chalafanecha, but the rabbis who said you can't sentence it in its absence, you would never get to the point of saying Harishal Chalafanecha because it has to already be sentenced in its presence, and then it's not going to be returned to the Ba'alim, to the original owners to begin with. Uh, all right, I'm going to move on to the mission. I don't have much to add here. Um, but I think that whole question of, you know, sort of, uh, Hamid seems to have its own set of laws. Like whenever you have it, when it comes to it being something that's a sort to eat, owning it over Pesach and it being stolen, it has, it's like its own separate category and the halachot around it are very different. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's why it becomes the introductory case for something that's really about the ox, meaning the odds of somebody stealing bread and giving it back, like trying to give it back in this way, is, I think, less likely than the issue of the ox. Right. But so it's feel... interesting then to me why it's the case. Like, why are they teaching it from the exception? So in the end, I think it's not the exception. I think that because they say everybody agrees, Harish al applies. And then the only question is, was the ox judged? Can, can you, can the, can the court judge the ox for that status of being stoned and therefore it will become a sorbahana? Can that happen with the ox in absentia? Which is again, a, a very difficult conversation to have because what are they bringing the ox to the court? Do the court come to the field? Like, how does this work? And I would really like to know. So in other words, you're saying it's not an exception because there's another case that's like it. Whereas like, I think the, the, the general rule is something that you can't get enough from, which is how I should have started this. That in other words, Hamid on Pesach always has its own set of rules because it's something you can't get any enough from. So sort of in any amount or any type of Hana, it's not allowed. But you're trying to say it's the case that makes more sense to teach it from, as opposed to doing it from the ox to, to Hamid, because it's like sort of the paradigmatic case of no Hana. I think so. And I think also it's kind of like the Mishnah presents it as a very, like, like an obvious here you go kind of case. And then the Gemara says, wait, is it because of this? No, it's not, that's not the reason. Is it because of that? No, that's not the reason. Here's another reason that the ox gets its own treatment, which is more complicated than the Chabit's case. So I think it will be harder to put the ox in the Mishnah for those who are retaining, you know, the issue of Isur Chana'ah, right? Something that is prohibited for benefit for remembering Mishnayot. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm speculating too far, but it seems to me logical that the simpler case becomes the springboard to discuss the whole question of prohibited from benefit. Okay, I hear that. I'm moving on. We're going to just do a Mishnah quickly and then we'll wrap up today. All right. Somebody gives a craftsman something to fix and they ruin it. We probably have all had that experience, right? They have to pay. Uh, if somebody gave to a harash, a uh, carpenter, a carriage, a box, or a class to fix the kilkel, and he ruined it, he has to pay. Or uh, a builder was contracted to demolish a wall. But he breaks the stones or damages them, he has to pay. If he was demolishing them from one side, and they fell from another side, then he is actually, um, in that case, he would, because in other words, 
it didn't fall because of the force of his blow, but rather because of the loss, the loss of support. Um, but if it be because of the blow, he is chayat. So the whole idea of this Mishnah is essentially, right, that if you have someone, you hire somebody to do work for you, and they end up causing damage when they do the work, they actually have to pay for the damage. And I think we can all think of modern day cases where this is true. So the Gemara is going to start off with Ravasi saying, I'm a Ravasi. Right, this ruling of the Mishnah about the carpenter is only when you gave him a finished carriage, a box, or a closet to put the nails into. The Na'atahem Masmer, and he drove a nail into the end, the Shibaran, and broke them. But if you gave the carpenter the wood to make these items, and he made the carriage box or closet and then broke them afterwards, Pator. Why is he Pator? My time. Because again, we get back to the, you know, the Shinui Kona kind of, but here they call it Kona Beshevach, right? He took the wood and he improved it. But if he ruined it afterwards, like at the end, you know, it really was his work, right? And so he's not really going to be liable uh, for that. So the Gemara is going to go on to discuss from here. That's kind of like the setup question there. Um, and we'll see a little bit more tomorrow how what the Gemara is going to do with this. But um, I think this is a mission that it actually presents fairly obvious to us, right? If you are a, a, a craftsman, if you're a workman, and you damage someone's property while doing the craft that you are supposed to be, uh, you know, good at, you, you have to pay for that damaged item. Probably, I don't know what the most common would be. Maybe it's like you take something to the dry cleaner and it gets ruined or something with your car. I don't know. I think it's, uh, yes, I think this is a, a sadly common experience. Um, and sometimes, right, sometimes a, a craftsperson will have a disclaimer, especially somebody working with very delicate stuff. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.